Well, as Matt said at the beginning of our service, we come today to the end of this study of the book of 2 Corinthians, which is really a letter, not a book, but we call it a book. It's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church that he founded in the city of Corinth back in the first century. And as we come to the end of this book, we come also to the climactic statement of this book, one of the more intriguing statements, but almost certainly the climactic statement that the whole of the book has been driving toward. And we come as well with that statement to the end of this dispute that we've been watching as we've studied this book. So if you've missed it, here's the deal. After Paul plants this church in the city of Corinth, and then he leaves some other guys, and we don't know who they are, show up at this church in the city of Corinth, and here's what they show up with. They show up with a false gospel, and they show up with a whole list of reasons why this church that Paul planted, he's their apostle, okay, ought to follow them instead. So they show up with the false gospel and they show up with all of these different reasons why they're superior to the apostle Paul. They are super apostles and he's, you know, I mean, maybe he's an apostle, but he's down here and we're up here. And so, so much of this letter has been Paul not just refuting their false gospel, but it's been Paul refuting all of these different reasons that these guys have been laying out as to why they're superior to him. And today, we come to the last of those reasons. And the last of those reasons is this. These guys are saying to this church in Corinth, hey, here's what makes us so much more special than Paul, among other things. We have been receiving all of these incredible visions and revelations from the Lord our God, which of course begs the question who the Lord their God is. And in fact, Paul answered that last week when he said, look, you're inspired by a spirit, but it's the spirit of the evil one. Nevertheless, they're claiming that by the spirit of God, they receive all of these supernatural visions and revelations and so on and so forth. And so here's what Paul is forced in some sense to do. He's forced to come forward and to deal with that. And here's what he's going to say. He's going to say, all right, so here's the deal. If I wanted to boast about that kind of a thing, visions, revelations, all of those kinds of things. Okay, so I I could do that. And if you know the record of Paul's life, it's laid out in the New Testament. Read through the book of Acts. Read his various letters. One of the things you'll find is that it was a blaze of supernatural stuff, including visions and revelations, and he'll even kind of, sort of, maybe a little bit tell us about one today. So he says, look, if I wanted to boast about that, I could boast about that. Here's the deal, though. I I don't want to boast about that. That's, That's boasting in the wrong thing. That is not what you people at the city of Corinth and that church ought to be looking for in an apostle or in any follower of Christ. He says, I'm going to boast, but it's going to be in exactly one thing. If I'm going to boast, it's going to be in my weaknesses, in my trials, in my sufferings, in my hardships, in all of my afflictions, in all of the stuff that I've endured in life and because of my passion for Christ, because of my ministry. I'm going to boast in that, and here's why I'm going to boast in that. Because it's been through that that I have come to realize that, hey, you know what? When everything in life has been taken from me but God Himself, God is enough for me. His grace is sufficient to satisfy me. And then even more than that, when I have been stripped down to nothing, when I have been taken to a place of utter powerlessness, when none of my resources and none of my intellect and none of my friends and none of my connections and none of my power and none of my prestige, of which incidentally He had none, can cure whatever it is that's afflicting me when I'm left with nothing but the power of God by which to get up every day and to do what He calls me to do. Here's what I've discovered. That's enough too. 
I want you to see me, he says, for who I really am. Not for who I'm pretending to be. Not for who I want you to think that I am. I'm not going to brag about anything other than the stripped down to nothing me. And that's who I am. Weak. Why? So that if or when you see cool stuff coming out of me, you know that it has nothing to do with me. I mean, it's coming through me. But it's all about him. Paul's not into exalting himself. That's what these guys do. Paul's into exalting Christ. And he's willing and indeed has been debased in order to do it. So God is enough is the idea. His grace satisfies and his power sustains. And what I want you to see is that, okay, that's not just true for the Apostle Paul. It's true for us too. So with that in mind, we pick up our study today in 2 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 1, where Paul says this. He says, I must go on boasting. And clearly he's not excited about that, but he has to do that. Why? Because that's what these guys are doing. And again, they're boasting in visions and dreams and revelations and all that nonsense. And so he says, I must go on boasting. And even though there is nothing to be gained by it, he says, I will now go on to talk about visions and revelations of the Lord, meaning visions and revelations of the Lord that Paul was given by God. But now notice how he does it. Because it's not in a bragging kind of a way. It's, it's in a way that sort of distances himself from it. It's, it's like he's kind of going, yeah, I, I feel uncomfortable bragging about this. This was between me and the Lord. So he speaks of himself in the third person. He says, I know a man in Christ, and the man in Christ is Paul. Who 14 years ago, not 14 months ago, not 14 weeks ago, not 14 days ago, not 14 hours or minutes ago. 14 years ago was caught up, it's the word for rapture, by the way, to the third heaven. And you say, well, good grief, how many heavens are there? I thought there was just one. Well, to the ancient mind, there were several. And the highest one was always the place where the Lord himself lived. So in this particular construct, caught up to the third heaven. First heaven, okay, that's the atmosphere in which we live. That's the the realm of the bugs and the bees. The birds, all of that. Second heaven, sun, moon, stars. Third heaven... That's paradise, and he'll say that here in a second. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. Did I literally go there? Did I go there in my mind? What was that? But God knows. And here's what I do know. He says, I know that this man was caught up, here it is, into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. In case you missed it the first time, I do not know, but God knows. And then he, this man who is Paul, what? Well, clearly he saw amazing things. But clearly also he heard things that cannot be told, he says, which man may not utter. And so I think we'd have to agree that Paul had a pretty amazing, incredible revelation or vision from the Lord, whether in the body or out of the body. I don't know. He doesn't even know. Only the Lord knows. And he saw unbelievable things and he heard unbelievable things. And he tells us about absolutely none of them. It's fascinating. He's like, I had a revelation. And they're all like, yes, this is going to be great. Tell me all the details, because that's what these guys are doing. Paul says, no, I'm not going to reveal anything. I'm not going to do that. And even though the chronology, the record of his life, indicates that he had lots of these things, and a lot of them far more recent in time to the writing of this letter than one that was 14 years ago, he cites one from 14 years ago. These guys are going, hey, 14 minutes ago, I had this amazing thing happen, and let me tell you all the details. Paul's going, no, no, that's not what you should be looking for in an apostle or even in a follower of Christ. That's not the thing we ought to boast in. It may be an amazing gift, 
but we boast in our weaknesses. And so he says, on behalf of this man that is himself, I will boast about those things, but on behalf of myself, on my own behalf, I will not boast except of one thing, my weaknesses. And then he says, though if I should wish to boast about visions and revelations from God, unlike those guys who are there with you as you're reading this out loud in their presidents, no doubt, okay, I would not be a fool. And here's why, for unlike them, I would be speaking the truth. But instead I will refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than what? Than what he sees in me. And what is that? Because we've already said it. Weakness. Weakness. He says, no, I'm going to refrain from that other talk so that no one may think more of me. I want you to think about Jesus and more of him. No one may think more of me than what he sees in me, which is my weaknesses, or than what he hears from me, which is the true gospel that Paul preached, but not just preached, but literally, if you think about it, bore the marks of in his own flesh. As you move through the sufferings of Paul, if you just consider the various marks that they would have left permanently on his body, you realize that as he moved through life and moved toward death self-consciously, like he saw the end coming before he got there for sure, he writes about that, collecting up all of these scars, not only in his person, not only in his character, not only in his heart does he look more and more and more like Christ, he looks more and more like Christ in his own body. Jesus was scourged. Imagine what his back looked like after that. Okay, well now look at the back of the Apostle Paul. He was scourged five times, beaten with rods three. When he took his shirt off, whose back did you see? Paul's or Jesus? Because they looked the same. It's a remarkable thought. He's shipwrecked off the coast of Malta. He washes up upon the shore. It's cold. They make a fire. He's gathering up sticks. We read about this in the book of Acts. And now think about all of the emblems of this and all of the parallels to Jesus. A poisonous serpent. Who is the evil one? What is he likened to? A deadly snake, is he not? Affixes itself, attaches itself to his hand. It pierces his hand, in other words. And it gives him the deadly poison of its bite, which he sustains. He lives through, miraculously, by the way. He's delivered from death. Does that sound familiar? It's the language of resurrection. Who is Christ from the third chapter of the Bible? He is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent, but he will sustain its deadly bite, but overcome it in resurrection. That's the idea. He shakes the snake off into the fire, and much to the amazement of all the islanders, he doesn't die. It's remarkable. It's miraculous. But what did his hand look like after that? Like the hand of Jesus. Paul is put into prison in Philippi, and we're told specifically that his feet are pinned to the wood stocks. So whose feet does his feet look like then after that? As we'll see in a second, Paul's going to talk about a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know if that's a physical issue or what that is. And we'll discuss that when we get to it. But within the context of this, what does it remind you of? It reminds you of the thorns that the Lord wore that pierced his flesh. 
And it seems incredibly evident to me that Paul himself saw this pattern because he begins toward the end of his life, and even here in a second, to speak in a language that indicates that he saw that his sufferings corresponded to the sufferings of Jesus. And so, for example, he'll tell us in just a minute that he prayed three times that the Lord would remove this thorn from his flesh. How many times did Jesus pray in the Garden of Gethsemane that he might be spared the cup of suffering by which he won all of our redemption three times? And in both cases, both for Jesus and for Paul, and thankfully for us, the answer to the prayer was no, which, by the way, is a valid answer and an answer that is good, for it served the purposes of the Lord. There is a purpose in no, too. But then even beyond that, as Paul gets toward the end of his life and he sees it coming, what does he say? He says, I am ready to be poured out. Now, hang on a second, because when Christ is, is crucified, how do they confirm his death by piercing his side with a spear, and literally, and quite graphically, he is, it notes, poured out. Paul sees the correspondence, guys. He gets to the end of his life, and he says, I I have, ready, finished my course. What does the Lord say from the cross? It is finished. So what I'm trying to get you to see is that Paul sees this, and we ought to see this. His sufferings correspond. They mimic, in some way, the sufferings of Jesus, but what I want you to now see is that so do yours. Maybe not physically, but the reality is that every wound that we sustain in this life leaves a scar. It may not be one you see on your back, but it's one you carry inside of you. And the Lord had all those scars, has all those scars too. I mean, when you walk through the experience of Jesus and you walk through your own experience, you realize that Jesus too bears the scars, for example, of betrayal and of abandonment. Do you have any of those? He bears the scars of being misunderstood and misrepresented even by people who knew him the best. He bears the scars of slander and of gossip, of mistreatment, of abuse, of humiliation, if I can say it, of nakedness. He bears the scars of racism, of poverty, of degradation of all kinds. He bears all of the same scars that we do. Which is a great encouragement when you consider that what those scars then become for us are points of identification with the one who was scarred to rescue me and to rescue you. It's phenomenal. And it's incredibly encouraging too when you realize that the pattern of Christ doesn't end in sufferings and scars and death and in burial. It ends in resurrection and eternal glory. And that same pattern belongs to us as well. That's how our story ends. It's how our scars are redeemed. So what Paul's saying here to these guys at Corinth is, look, I know that one of the reasons these false preachers and teacher guys are trying to exalt themselves above me is they're arguing that, hey, you know what? We get all of these visions and revelations from Almighty God. I mean, look at all. We just had one 14 seconds ago. So now let me tell you about that. All of its detail that I might impress you. And Paul's like, A, they're not even Christians. So then who are they coming from? And B, that's not what to look for. Here's what you should be looking for in an apostle and in a follower of Jesus. You should be looking for one who bears the marks of Christ. It may be on their flesh, but but most definitely in their life. And what are those marks? It's various forms of weakness and death that then give way to various forms of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, by which he may miraculously deliver and heal you authentically. But I think far more often than not, 
by which he reveals to you who and what you really are, which as we talked about last week, is weak. It's weak. And by which you discover that you know what? When this is taken from me, and 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 all of the things that I'm tempted to look to for satisfaction in life are taken from me, and all of the props that I have by which I prop myself up and make myself to feel secure, which is an illusion, when those things are all gone, here's what I discover. Much to my own delight and to the delight of those who watch, yeah, God's enough for me, man. His grace is enough to satisfy me. If I have Him, I have everything. And His power and my powerlessness is, is made manifest. It works. It's seen. And that's what happens with Paul. Paul continues in verse 7. He says, so to keep me from what? from becoming conceited, from becoming carried away in terms of my own ego because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that God, unlike those other guys, actually did and has, in fact, given to me. Okay, what happened? A thorn. Now, wait a minute. The word thorn can also be translated stake, as in a stake that you would drive deeply into the earth and tie a very short rope around and then attach to your ankle if you were fearful, for example, of floating up off of the earth, at least in terms of your own ego. A thorn in the flesh was given me. What is the thorn about? It's about ego management. Paul has been lifted up into the heavens by the revelations. And his ego cannot handle it. He is tempted to be prideful. So what does the Lord do? He gives him a thorn that literally stakes him to the ground. It's remarkable. He says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that God gave to me, a thorn or a stake, take your pick, was given me in the flesh, and it was given to him, obviously, by God. But notice, through what means? A messenger of Satan that is sent, at least in some sense, by God is the idea to do what? To harass me. And the underlying Greek language here means to harass me continuously. It's not like he showed up, he harassed him once and said, okay, I'm done, and left. No, no, it's constant harassment. It's, it's unrelenting harassment. It's harassment that will not stop, is the point. Sent to harass me. And again, to the end of keeping me from becoming conceited, or literally to, to keep my feet, egotistically speaking, staked to the ground. And you say, okay, so hang on a second. So are you saying that Almighty God, in some sense, sent a messenger of Satan, to constantly and continuously harass Paul so as to keep Paul from becoming conceited because of the visions and revelations that God had shared with him that his ego otherwise would not have been able to handle. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. And I think that that's why Martin Luther very famously, for example, said this. He said, yes, there is a devil, but he is God's devil. And that does not mean that they play for the same team and God's the quarterback and the devil is the wideout. That's not it. It doesn't mean that, but it does mean that there are some very large differences between the two. God is all-powerful. The evil one is not. God is all-knowing. The evil one is not. God is absolutely everywhere and all the time present. He is infinite in His being. He is focused 100% of Himself 100% of the time on every one of His children. The evil one is not. And what that means is that nothing can come into our lives, be that from the hand of the evil one or from our own hand or the hand of somebody else or all three at once, unless the Lord at the very least allows it. And He will not allow it 
unless there is a purpose to it that is good. And if and when that purpose is accomplished, then the Lord may remove it, and He may remove it miraculously if that's what He deems to do, and He has a further purpose in the miracle. But unless or until the purpose is completed, it's not removed as you see here in the experience of Paul, because he continues in verse 8, and I want you to feel the passion. With the, He says three times, I pleaded with the Lord. This harassment is a bummer. This is like not a fun experience for him. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn in my flesh, and we don't know what the thorn in the flesh was. We don't know if it was a physical ailment of some kind. We don't know if it was an emotional ailment, if it was depression and anxiety, which frankly can be worse than a physical ailment. Sometimes you can fix that with surgery. You can't do that with your heart. We don't know if it was a sin or temptation that you just couldn't quite break free of. We don't know if it was the persecution. We don't know if it was these guys who were at Corinth maligning him. Just the constant harassment of all the persecution that he seemingly endured everywhere that he could have been that. We don't know what it is, and it's wonderful that we don't know what it is because what that allows us to do is no matter what our thorn is, we can totally identify with this guy And if or when it does not serve the Lord's purpose to remove that thorn, then it takes what Jesus says to Paul next, and it makes it ours. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn in my flesh, that it should leave me. But instead, the Lord said to me, and this is the climactic statement of the book, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And if or when God's purpose in your weakness is fulfilled, then He very well may remove your thorn. And He very well may do it miraculously. We live in a world that was miraculously and supernaturally created. It is miraculously and supernaturally sustained. And we belong and live for a miraculous and supernatural God who works that way. And so we pray for miracles. And when it serves the purpose of the Lord to do that, then He will do that. But when it does not serve the purpose of the Lord, I think that we need to admit um, that He won't. And then here's the difficult part, but the true part, that when it doesn't serve His purposes to heal or deliver us, His purposes nevertheless are good. In other words, it is good that He doesn't heal or deliver us until His purposes are fulfilled. Now that is something you can only see or say or receive with eyes and hearts of faith. That's a tough word. I want to read to you part of what James Montgomery Boyce, who was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for 32 years before his death in the year 2000, said to his congregation shortly after he received a diagnosis of liver cancer in eight weeks, as it turned out, Uh, before he died from that cancer. He said this. He said, should you pray for a miracle? He said, well, you are free to do that, of course. Though my general impression is that the God who is able to do miracles, and He certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. A miracle has to be an unusual thing. And so then he says, above all else, I would say, pray for the glory of God. And if I can call a time out, sometimes it is to the glory of God that a miracle be done. 
But more often than not, it seems, it's to the glory of God that it not be done. And either way is good. He says, I would say above all, pray for the glory of God. He says, if you think of God glorifying Himself in history, and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified Himself? Well, here it is. He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though He could have. Jesus Himself said, don't you think I could call down from my Father ten legions of angels for my defense? But He didn't do that. And yet that is where God is most glorified. And please don't miss this next statement. He says, God is in charge. And we've got to kind of take that into our hearts for a second. Because we live as though He's not. And it's easy to live as though He's not when everything's rolling, isn't it? How do we learn that He isn't? It's when He brings something into our lives that we can't control. That no amount of effort on our part, no intellect, no resource, nothing can fix. He reduces us to powerlessness to show us the reality that actually is true all of the time already. And that is that control on our part is an illusion, guys. God is in charge, he says. And then he continues and says, and when things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something bad slipped by. But God is not only the one who is in charge. God is also good. And everything He does is good. And so if God does something in your life, would you change it? Because if you'd change it, you'd only make it worse. It would not be as good. And so Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this thorn in my flesh that it should leave me, but it obviously didn't serve the Lord's purposes in my life for it to leave me. And here's how I know that, because instead of causing it to leave me, I got this. The Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. And that, Paul says, has taught me what to boast in. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may, key phrase, rest upon or literally pitch its tent upon me. And I love that phrase because we find it in other places too. The Apostle John seems to be particularly enamored with that phrase. He uses it in a very famous verse that you know, I think. John 1 verse 14, speaking of Jesus, the Apostle John says the Word, who is Jesus, became flesh and did what? He dwelt? No. Well, literally what it says is He pitched His tent among us. And then again in Revelation 23, 3, speaking of the new heavens and of the new earth and of our eternal destination, He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will do what? He will dwell. He will pitch His tent, is what it says literally, with them, and they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And I love that phrase because I think that what Paul's saying is that in those God-ordained seasons of life in which we have been afflicted with a thorn, with weakness of some kind, and the Lord's word to us is not one of deliverance or healing, but instead, because He has a greater purpose. It's one in which He says, My grace is sufficient for you. My power will be made perfect in your weakness. And your weakness will endure for a while. It seems to me that in using that phrase, Paul is saying, yeah, but the Lord draws awful near to you. He pitches His tent with you. He lives with and walks with you. 
in a unique kind of way. And since that's worth bragging, or since that's worth bragging about, Paul then concludes by saying this in verse 10. He says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am happy with my no. I'm delighted, no. I really want the Lord to bring more no. But he does say this: I am content. I'm not fighting against it. I'm content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships persecutions, and general category, calamities. And here's why. For when I am weak, then because of my Savior who pitches His tent with me and satisfies me with His grace and sustains me with His power, I am strong. And that's not just the word of the Lord to Paul. That's the word of the Lord to me. It's the word of the Lord to you. So I'm going to ask you two questions and I'm done. Number one, what is your thorn? What is it? I mean, that's the easy one, isn't it? You're like, it's obvious, typically. But let me ask you an ancillary question, an add-on. What is its purpose? Why do you think the Lord gave it to you? And, 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 you know, it may be a purpose that's unique to you. He wanted to teach me this. And, or, it might be a purpose that's unique to other people. He wanted to teach them this. Seems to me there could be thousands, hundreds of thousands of purposes in every single one of every one of our unique thorns, really. Can you identify one? Maybe the answer is no, and you're just called to walk by faith in the darkness of not knowing. And maybe the answer in that sense is that there is an audience of heaven watching you walk in the darkness and cling to your Lord, notwithstanding the fact that He has denied you the answer to that question. That brings him glory too. But Paul at least knew one of the answers. That, hey, it's ego management. It's keep me humble. And I think that that helps. So what is your thorn? What do you think the purpose is? And then lastly, what are you doing with your thorn? Because I want to say this as kindly as I can. And as a human being with the same heart as yours, <laughs> relating to human beings. Here's why he did not give it to me or to you, but it's what we're tempted to do. He didn't give it to us to make us resentful. He didn't give it to us to make us angry. He didn't give it to us to make us bitter, to make us cynical, to make us negative, to make us any of those things. He didn't give them to us for us to deny or suppress them or try to control or to manage them in our own strength as if we could do that. We can't. He gave them to us for the purpose generally of His glory and of our good. Whether we can understand and put all that together, we can do the math on that or not. He gave them to us for us to embrace them as vehicles through which He will reveal to us and to others who are watching us that, hey, you know what? When this is gone and this is gone and this is gone and all I have is the Lord, really? He's enough for me. And when I am left helpless, His power is seen most clearly by me and through me. And by the way, in the end, He will deliver you from your thorn. James Boyce was delivered from his thorn. You're like, no, 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 he died. Right. And then he went to heaven, which as Paul has already explained to us, is full of things that are so amazing and wonderful that they cannot here be properly uttered. <laughs> So, like, I'm guessing that when he got there, he's not going, oh, man, I'm so disappointed. You know, like, can I just go back now? And neither will we. 
And more than that, how does the pattern end? It's life and there's sufferings and there's scars and let's just own that. And they're all purposeful. Let's not forget that. And it is death and it's burial. And then it's resurrection. We get our lives back in the end and we get them back in the end to enjoy a world in which we never lose them again and in which there are no more reasons for thorns. So be encouraged. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have not left us uh, to suffer the thorns of this life alone or without hope. But God, through faith in Jesus Christ, the one who knew no thorns until he entered into this world to rescue us, who was scarred in all the same places and then some, that all of us have been scarred, who was scarred, who suffered to claim us as His own. Lord, that through Him there is redemption of all things. God, I pray that You would help us to see Him clearly, not just in His weakness and death, but in the power of His resurrection and in the glory of His kingdom. And I pray, Lord, that You would work with us. Hitch Your tent. Draw near to us in the thorns that You Yourself have caused or allowed to come into our lives. Lord, miraculously deliver us from the ones that it would serve your purpose to do that with and for the ones that it does not serve your purpose to do that with and give us your grace. Give us your power. Give us faith by which to say it is good. Do these things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.